Welcome to episode 59 of the Daniel Yours Podcast with today's guest, Daniel DeBrock. Let's go. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Joined here today by Daniel DeBrock from Calgary, Alberta, the Texas of Canada. Daniel, thanks for joining me here today, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure to you know connect with you a little bit over over Instagram and finally get down to get to get to sit down and have a conversation. So, you know, a lot of crazy things that we not strength training and fitness related that we probably connected over, but I think that we can translate a lot of that into things that are relevant to the gym. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely, man. Why don't we just get right into it? Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. Who are you, and what do you do? Uh, yeah, so. I'm, well, I guess my role has kind of been adapting over the last little while, but especially recently. So um, <clears throat> I am now education coordinator uh, for Kabuki Strength. So I haven't announced that to anyone <laughs> at all. So, um, but yeah, that, that, so that's my primary role. Uh, I'm also a strength coach, primarily like strength athletes, uh, again, mostly powerlifters. Um, I've been a coach for, I think, a little over 10 years now. Uh, honestly, it was just kind of something I fell into randomly. I used to be a boxer, someone, uh, at a gym that I was working out at found out that I was a high level or used to be a high level boxer. And then, uh, they were like, have you ever thought about being a trainer? And I was like, not really, <laughs> but then they, they convinced me. So I went to school and did that whole thing, got hired. And that was just kind of, I sort of just fell into it actually. And then turns out that I, I happened to, to love it and got into writing for, for different publications. That's kind of how I got started with working for Kabuki strength. Um, been able to, to work on some pretty cool projects with some other organizations. And I think that's mostly what's relevant, I guess. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And congratulations on that. And thanks for re- revealing that. Um, it's a, yeah. that's Kabuki is no no slouch in the game, for sure. One of the, the best of the best, as you know, anyone who's involved in these things would know. Um, but, but it is interesting how our careers kind of follow that path where you know, you didn't even really start out wanting to be a trainer. And now you're running education kind of thing for a major publication. Yeah. Um, it, it's funny. Cause like the education side of things is really my passion. I'd say like, I really enjoy just learning in general, I guess. Um, the, the whole process I find pretty fun, not necessarily even just specific to, uh, training, but just sort of generally. So being able to, to shift in that direction, having a really big shift recently has been pretty, pretty awesome. Um, because allows me to do things and pursue things that I really enjoy while still keeping, you know, my, I guess, one foot in the game of, of coaching so that I don't necessarily get too disconnected and, and too drawn into theoretical aspect without any sort of practical application. So definitely happy with, with that progression lately. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that I wanted to talk to you about actually is this, this dichotomy between practical application and theoretical. There's a lot of people who know the things that we need to do. And if we even break it down, to the most simplest, say fat loss. We need to, you know, eat less and move more is the, the simplest way to do it. And we all kind of know that, but actually putting it into practice is quite a lot more difficult than knowing the theory of it. So do you find that it is very beneficial to like still be on the floor coaching, still be on the floor training hard as you are um, while being on the theoretical side of things as well? Um, if... I guess it really depends on what you're what you're doing. So if you're a researcher, I'm not sure that you would really need to because you aren't writing for for coaches. You're writing for other researchers. 
right? And you're just kind of building right. up the literature. So I don't necessarily think you need to in that sense. But I think if you want to be a, a very good researcher, you should at least have some practical side to you, to, again, depending on the type of research you're doing. If you're doing a bunch of like mechanistic stuff, eh, probably not. But uh, if, if you want to be someone who's, you know, educating athletes to, to be better athletes or educating coaches to be better coaches or some sort of combination of that, then I would say that you certainly have to have some sort of like actual practical experience. Um, and that's something that's kind of changed. I, I used to believe that you could be a good coach with limited experience, but a really good knowledge base. Whereas now I don't know that I do subscribe to that. I, I think you do have to be a good athlete um, in addition to knowing the research. And again, good is a very subjective term. So I'm not saying that you need to be like international elite or anything like that in, in powerlifting to coach powerlifters, but you should have achieved some sort of modicum of success in your own, you know, lifting career. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be the same one. Let's say you're a really high level rugby player and now you're a strength coach and you're primarily coaching strength athletes. I think that's perfectly fine because you understand what it takes to be a good athlete. And those things transfer uh, relatively well, even though the specific training, you know, parameters and, and paradigms, I guess, are, are different. But I do think you need to have some actual experience in order to be a very good coach. I think you can be a decent coach without it. But I think if you want to be a very good coach, you absolutely have to have an athletic background yourself. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I would tend to think that the main reason for that is because what separates someone from being, in my opinion, what separates someone from being a great coach, whether it be a sport coach or a fitness coach of anything, is understanding the person that's in front of you, the human being. We all can, you know, recite the things from the biomechanics textbook and the anatomy textbook. Like that's that's the easy part. But coaching the human in front of you, the team in front of you, if it's a team sport or whatever it may be, that's way harder. And you can only learn that and understand that by having gone through it yourself or put others through it yourself, I think. Yeah, hundred percent. And like, I've said this before and then people give me like random examples and usually they're related to football, like football coaches. And they're like, Oh, well he wasn't a high level. And I, th that's kind of a bad example for me because I actually don't watch sports really. So I only watch combat sports. So I have no reference point. So I'm just like, okay. But I mean, I don't think that pointing to an exception and then being like, this is the rule is necessarily very accurate. Like, you know, if, if, I guess when I'm looking at a coach and if someone asks me, you know, how do you determine a good coach? It's like, okay, like, were they a good athlete? You know, can they produce athletes instead of just adopting them? You know, cause I know a lot of people who have adopted a couple high level athletes and they're like, Oh, that's my claim to fame. And it's like, yeah, but you didn't, like, you didn't make them like they were going to be amazing no matter who coached them, you know, which I think is different. And then, um, Additionally, it's like, what kind of like education are you actually putting out there? Like, what, what is your actual knowledge base? And all of those things are fairly easy to quantify. And if you can say yes to all of those, then there's a pretty decent likelihood that you can end up being a pretty good coach, you know? Um, and again, they're kind of subjective, but uh, I, I do think it is important to kind of have your, like some sort of skin in the game. Yeah. And we've, we've seen multiple times where phenomenal athletes from various sports enter a career of coaching post playing career, and they end up to be not that great coaches. And yeah. sometimes I think that that can be because that can be because they can't translate what they did, what worked for them to other people, what they did and what made them phenomenal work for them as an individual, but it's not really going to translate to other people. And so 
that would be a good example of someone who's very gifted at the sport or, or at lifting or whatever it is, but they, they are successful just because, not because of their training. They're successful in spite of their training almost. Yeah. And actually it was funny because I made, I remember I made a post about, gosh, I can't remember what it was about. It was something about like skinny guys who are weak, telling strong jacked people how to train. And I, I kind of brought up a couple of you know issues that I had with when I see that happening on social media in particular. And the automatic assumption was that I was saying that the opposite was the absolute truth. So if you're jacked and strong, then you must know what you're talking about. It's like, well, that's not the case. Like if, if for instance, if I say I don't support uh, Justin Trudeau, for instance, if, if you're you know Canadian, he's the, the Canadian prime minister currently. And if I say I don't support him and then people are like, oh, so you're a conservative. It's like, well, I didn't say I was a conservative. <laughs> I just said I don't support him. You know what I mean? Like the opposite's not automatically true, but it's it's funny how people will automatically go to those extremes. And that was kind of what I was saying earlier about the whole football coach thing. And it's like, okay, sure, you can point someone out, but is that generally what we see? No. So if you expect me to you know, identify every single caveat in every conceivable context, it's just it's not possible. I can do a, a pretty good job at providing context and stuff like that. But then for a lot of the other stuff, it's just like, come on, man, you're a fucking idiot. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Don't play stupid. Yeah. It's people, people just loving to argue on the internet about literally anything with strangers yeah, that they don't yeah, know basically. or have never listened to. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I think in fitness, we see this a lot with, with a lot of beginners in the sort of cookie cutter programs and the quote unquote, you know, influencer people where, I find that their programs are not very good. Their coaching is average at best and, or, or, but they get people results. And I think it's because these people go from doing absolutely nothing to doing something. And so that will help them. And they think that, oh, this coach is amazing. Look what they got me. Look what he or she did for me and, and all this stuff. But what they fail to realize, I believe is, well, what could have happened if you did something that was way better? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it definitely does. Um, I, I'm I'm kind of actually on the other side, to be honest, in terms of like, I see people hitting on influencers all the time, but at the end of the day, like, what is it? Six pack shortcuts or whatever, probably a pretty good example of, or, or who, who is that guy? Gosh, what is that? Um, oh, I know the guy you're talking about, but I'm also Kino, blanking on his Kino name. Body. Oh, Kino him. Body. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's another really good example. Like his programming, like his programs, whatever that he sells are dog shit. Um, everything that he says that I've heard anyways has massive, massive flaws in it or is just blatantly wrong. Like the the vast majority of, of what I've heard. Now, I, I don't necessarily seek him out, but everything that I've ever seen has been pretty inaccurate. That being said, at the end of the day, he still gets people really good results, you know, and it doesn't cost him a lot of money and people have, you know, a lot of buy-in. That dude has in... Like, I don't even know how many hundreds of transformations on his website. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, like you said, if I mean, sure, he may be a shitty coach and whatever, but at the end of the day, he's still having a positive impact. That was kind of the same thing that I saw with CrossFit when CrossFit first came out. Everyone was hating on it. And like, yeah, there were major issues with it where it's like, hey, Rabdo wasn't a thing. And now it's a <laughs> thing. That's a fucking issue. Like you shouldn't be doing Olympic lifting for reps and as, as an endurance training exercise. Like that makes you a shitty coach. And you don't know how to program. But at the same time, people who do CrossFit love CrossFit. They love the community. And CrossFit's done an exceptional job of, of building that community. And, and it's getting people fit. So like, okay, yeah, sure, it's having a negative impact on the one side. But I think the positive impact, like 
massively outweighs any sort of negatives that come from it. And, and with some tweaking and development, like, it, I mean, even, even the last couple of years has come a long way. You don't see the same kind of stupid shit now that they used to do. Um, I'm not super, you know, like I don't have my finger on the pulse with, with, with CrossFit to be honest, but I know that there's been a lot less of those, like, let's say gym fail, you know, videos coming from CrossFit boxes at least lately. So. Yeah. That, it's funny that you mentioned that because I've talked about that, this exact thing so many times on the podcast where like, yeah, CrossFit is silly for, for a bunch of things, but it gets people moving. There's a great sense of community. So like, there's a lot of positives that come with it as well. If we look at purely the exercise programming and stuff, of course it can be better. And, and I agree with you as well on, on the Kino body and things of the like, or, or Greg or whatever, where he's getting people moving. People are getting results. They're not massively getting ripped off. He's not charging thousands and thousands of dollars. So could it be better? Yes. Is it overwhelmingly a good thing? I also think yes. Yeah. It's a it's a tough thing to it's a tough thing to wrap our heads around though, because there are a lot of people who who are ripping people off. And, you know, those of us who are a little bit more educated or or want to be uh, dig into the details a little bit more and get people better results, be a little bit more holistic, whatever it is, sometimes we we kind of cringe at that and it's and it's hard and it feels like we're competing against that. But then I think we have to remember that there's a whole bunch of people out there and maybe those results will work for someone who's a beginner. But eventually, if you're doing something that is suboptimal, it's going to stop working and you've got to look for something more later on. And I think that's where the next level of, of coaches come into play. Yeah, hundred percent. It's a, uh, it's a tough thing, but I think, you know, with, uh, this, a lot of it comes back to human behavior where in my opinion, consistency is probably far and away for most people, average people, the most important thing. So if we can get people to buy into a training program, that is the most important thing. And I know that, you know, training mindset and human behavior is something that you've spoken about before. What are some of the things that you try to teach people who you're training or coaches on how to coach people through their training mindset? Uh, could you repeat the last part? Just, what, what is just, something I do? How do you talk about or teach either people that you're training or other coaches to to teach their trainees uh, about how to approach training and how to think about it from a behavioral standpoint. Right. Um, I have to think about that. Um, well, essentially, I think the first thing that's really, really important to understand is that you're not dealing with with research, right? Especially like when you look at population data, that's that's aggregate that's aggregated data, you know, and and research is largely based on averages they're they're like you know is this type of training stimulus effective and then they have kind of a pool and you have all sorts of different responders that that end up as different data points on on you know whatever graph or data set that they're using and then they kind of aggregate it and say on average we found this effect and therefore it is statistically significant and yada 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 but if you look at each data point each data point is an individual some people have exceptional responses. Some people have no responses. Some people have negative responses at times. And I think that it's really important, like, especially if you are going to take some sort of evidence-based approach or, you know, that, that you kind of understand that and like treat the person in front of you. I guess I shouldn't say treat, like we're not clinicians, but, you know, coach the person in front of you. And if you want to coach the person in front of you, you really have to understand that person. Like, you know, I don't give a fuck about my client's favorite colors or anything like that, but I do need to understand a little bit about them. You know, I need to understand what motivates them. I need to understand 
like their history of training. I need to understand their diet history. I need to understand, you know, why they struggle. When they struggle, what happens? If they have a binge eating episode, for instance, what caused that? How long has that been going on for? What have they tried to, to address that? You know, so you, you really do need to build a relationship with, with a client. You need to understand them. And then you need to understand like what drives behavior because a lot of the times people are like, oh, I'm self-sabotaging. And it's like, uh, maybe, but maybe not. Like if, if you look at a lot of behavior, it makes sense. Like if, if you have, if you have the full picture, it usually makes sense, right? So for instance, um, there are some statistics on, on like single, single parenthood, right? So if, um, if you're not socialized by the age of four, the likelihood that you're going to go end up in prison is like exponentially higher than, than if you were properly socialized, right? Um, you know, single motherhood, if you don't have a father figure, the likelihood of you ending up in prison goes up exponentially. And now I'm not like, so, so this is kind of like adjacent, obvious or not adjacent. This is kind of a parallel line of thinking, but when you look at certain like criminals, right. And certain criminal profiles, there are certain things where you're like, Oh, I understand why you're here. I understand how these things and these situations led to this. And in the same way, if you look at someone's, um, you know, past behavior with regards to nutrition, to training, their, their own individual experience, their perceptions, their values, how they see things, how they see life, uh, their, their social environment and, and, you know, the culture that they're in, it makes their decisions make a lot more sense. Right. So, I mean, you look at boredom meeting, for instance, boredom meeting is, is something that in the research is actually kind of, I shouldn't say it's funny, but it's kind of fucking funny. Like when you look at boredom meeting and, and the rationale that researchers give, they say, and this is like almost a direct quote, they say boredom eating stems from like, a lack of fulfillment, purpose, and meaning in life, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's a big driver. So yeah. if you're bored and, and you don't have much fulfillment, if you don't have like a strong purpose or a lot of these things, that is a, that is a, a risk factor for boredom eating. You know, that's not the only risk factor, but it is one. And so when you look at that then you're like, oh, okay. So do I really need to address the eating or do I need to address that? And then it, it kind of becomes this like much, much broader conversation because I'm not, I'm not a life coach. I'm not going to tell people what to do. I will have conversations like honest conversations with my clients and say, Hey, you know what? This is kind of what I'm noticing. You've been telling me that, you know, these are triggers. So why don't we just start going out more? You know, is it possible for you to plan one event going out per week where you meet up with a friend or you just go to the shooting range or do something that you really enjoy doing? Is that possible? Yes. Okay, great. And then we just start there and then, you know, just kind of build on that. And that, that's just kind of a, a hypothetical example. But those are things that as coaches, especially now, we are having to kind of venture into, right? You, you do have to understand individuals. You do have to understand everything about them. And like, it has to be a two-way process. It can't just be, hey, here's, you know, what we need to do, you know, calories in, calories out. So you're going to be in a deficit. It needs to be like, hey, here's the process that we're going to lose weight. Here's what you've tried in the past. Here's some things that I think are going to work. Where do you think that you can actually manage right now? You know, and you have to actually include them in that process. And then once you do that, it increases like autonomy. It increases their competency. It increases their self-efficacy because now they're going to start experiencing wins. If I toss like an average Joe into the most ex like insane program, they're not going to be able to do it. Their body's going to break down within two weeks because they haven't developed the tolerance to be able to train at those capacities yet. 
And so it's the same thing when you're trying to augment behavior. If you, if you go from zero to a hundred or even zero to three, that might even be too much, you know, just try going from zero to one or zero to 0.5, you know, like what's, what's, what are the low hanging fruits we can adapt right now? And there's a fantastic book, actually, it's called tiny habits there. There's two that I really enjoy. One's called tiny habits. That's a little bit more on the research side of things. It's very like user-friendly. It's, it's not like super filled with jargon, but it does talk a little bit about the research. And then there's one called The Slight Edge. Both are fantastic books, but they talk about the, I guess, compounding effect of, of accumulated behaviors, right? And so, for instance, like there was one uh, example that I gave in a presentation that I, I gave recently where, you know, um, I was trying to get an individual to, uh, to go to the gym, right? Because they just were not. And this is pretty uncharacteristic of, of a client that I would normally have. Most of my clients are competitive athletes um, to some capacity. And, uh, but anyways, this guy was really struggling. And so he said, okay, I just want you to put on your shoes and walk outside. Once you walk outside, you can walk right back in. That sounds like the dumbest thing. And I've had a lot of people like, oh, you're a fucking idiot. This guy just needs dedication, whatever. And it's like, okay, cool. But he tried other things and they didn't work. So let's just try this. So he did that for about a week. And then I was like, okay, do you think you can go for a walk around the block? And he's like, yeah. So then he went for a walk around the block. And then he did that for about a week. And he wasn't as consistent as I would have liked. He was only about 60% consistent. And I'm not going to move him up until he's about 90%, right? And so once he got to about 90%, all right, now we're moving it up to four blocks. Can you do four blocks? And then he said, no. So he just moved it up to two. And then that process went on. But over about then, like eventually then he got like, okay, I need you to go into the gym. Go into the gym, walk for five minutes, leave. You know, and I think it took him about six months before he actually started working out in a gym. But the entire time he was losing weight, he was stacking up wins. It was being integrated into his, into his daily routine. And there was literally almost no stress or thought around it because he started so small and the gradual steps he was taking were so small that they just did not seem insurmountable, right? And, and I mean, even if you communicate that with a client, right? Like you say, okay, our goal is to lose 30 pounds versus our goal is to uh, walk 5,000 steps a day and eat five servings of vegetables per day. One is ambiguous. I mean, it's a clearly defined end goal, but the steps are ambiguous. The other one is very clear on exactly what you need to do on a daily basis. And action-oriented behaviors will lead to the outcome eventually, whereas goal-oriented um, behaviors, a lot of the times there's a bit of a gap between intention and, and your actual behaviors. Like I'm intending to do all these things, but I, because I lack clear guidance and because the steps are a little bit too big for where I'm at right now, I can't necessarily close the gap and therefore my adherence suffers and inconsistent. I reinforce the idea that it's never going to happen for me. And so there, there's a lot that kind of goes into it, I guess. Um, I kind of think that I might just be rambling and I'm not even sure if I answered your question, actually. I think think you you answered many questions and and that's a a beautiful story about that gentleman just going outside and then progressing to six months later, actually doing workouts in the gym. But I think that, you know, anyone who listened to that, rewind this and listen to that story again, because a lot of us take way too big steps, especially I think now in this post-COVID world and and finally in Canada we can almost kind of sort of say post covid but where people have been at home and doing nothing for so long and everyone's like oh i got to lose the covid weight i'm going to go to the gym 6 times a week i'm going to follow a perfect meal plan i'm going to do all the things well it's like hold on we have done zero things for the past two and a half years 
let's start somewhere and let's start with things that are very low barrier, whether it be going for a little bit of a walk, whatever the thing is for you, going to bed 20 minutes earlier, anything uh, that it might be. And so these things are a skill. Getting consistent at healthy behaviors are a skill. And, and I'm trying very hard to move away from the the term healthy lifestyle because I really think it should just be lifestyle. And people who are not living a healthy lifestyle filled with movement and real food, like that's the that's the abnormality. People who live a healthy lifestyle and do these things, we're not the the weirdos, so to speak. We don't live this life of deprivation, which is, I know that that's also something that you've spoken about before, where people see fitness people, athletes, whatever, as, oh, you wake, you go to bed too early. You don't allow yourself to enjoy your life. You don't allow yourself to do this. And you're just constantly depriving. And it's like, no, that's not really what we're doing. I'm just doing the things that I want to do and not doing the things that I don't want to do or that are not conducive to my goals. Yeah. I don't know. Public perspective on, on some of these things is, is interesting. Like, um, I generally don't put a lot of thought into like, I guess how I'm perceived. Like I don't dress fancy. If I go out to the bar, like I don't drink. Um, in the past I used to bring Tupperware with me wherever and it wouldn't phase me, even if people would be staring at me, I'd, like, I just don't give a shit, you know, like I'll tip the waiter because I'm, I'm there, I'm taking up space. And so I'll, I'll give him a tip or whatever, but probably won't order anything other than like a diet Coke. But yeah. And like that scene is really odd and I get why that scene is odd, but then at the same time, it's like, you know, no one, no one really criticizes people for drinking on the weekends, you know, that's just kind of a pretty normal thing. And if anything, like I'm sort of like abnormal for not drinking, like the number of times, like if I'm out with, with, let's say I'm at a party and I don't know a ton of people will be like, Oh, you want to drink? And I'm like, Oh no, it's okay. And then they'll be like, Oh, why not? And then I'll be like, well, because I don't drink. They're like, Oh, are you an alcoholic? I'm like, no, I'm not an alcoholic. <laughs> I just don't really enjoy drinking that much. And I feel like shit. And it's like, it's funny because that's probably the most common response that I get. And it's like, why is that the most common response as opposed to like, you just don't drink because you don't drink, you know? So, I mean, but you look at the obesogenic environment that we're in right now and it's just like, everything is sort of pushing in that direction. Like you don't need to do anything to become fat and out of shape and weak and yeah, unformidable, I guess. Whereas if you want to develop the opposite, you need to put in a considerable amount of work for a very long period of time. And I think that's something that, you know, once you've done it for a long time, the the, the trade-offs are very clear and, and the benefits are, are, you know, very obvious. But if you haven't done it, it just seems like a lot of work. And <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very easy to to not be healthy, like you said, and just to become you know, fat and weak and, and these kind of things, you basically just have to do nothing and just give in to the give in to the vices that that exist readily right in front of us. And and that's that takes basically zero effort. Um, but what often happens in, in the beginning of anyone's fitness journey, and you would know this as well, is like they start to feel better first. It's like, oh wow, I I, I didn't realize how crappy I felt before when I was eat McDonald's and not moving. And it's like, well, just going for a walk, you know, once a day, not even doing anything crazy and maybe not even eating, like maybe not even eating a crazy healthy diet, but just eating slightly less shit. 
And it's like, wow, I feel way better. It's like, okay, now we've got that positive momentum. Now what would happen if we did that a little bit more? And we kind of, we, we get this, this uh, positive reinforcement to, to continue on this path. And I think that that is a better way to motivate people rather than like you mentioned before, where it's like, oh, our, if our goal is only losing 30 pounds, in my view, that's, that's a negative. We're losing something. We're taking something away. And I try and help people to think about, well, what can we add? Can we add strength? Can we add mobility? Can we add feeling good? Can we add waking up and not hurting? Can we add more energy throughout the day? Whatever it will be. What do you think about that? Like positive versus negative reinforcement for goals? Um, I don't know. I guess it depends. Um, I'm not really one to who cares for the whole like word games, you know, how people like, Oh, you shouldn't say that someone is fat. It's like, well, I'm not going out calling people fat, but (laughs) if you're going to be like, Hey, am I fat and overweight? And you ask me, then I'm going to say, yes. You know, it's like, I'm not a big fan of this whole like obfuscating reality because people's feelings are hurt. It's like, you know, so I'm not really one to mince my words, but then at the same time, like, I guess it just depends on the individual because, you know, and there, there's a little bit of research about this looking at like positive reinforcement versus kind of criticism, right. Or critiques. And the more advanced an athlete is the less they actually like positive reinforcement and the more that they like just being critiqued, like they want to know what's wrong. They want to fix it. They're less, they don't internalize it necessarily as much. Whereas a, a newer lifter and maybe a novice uh, and some intermediates that say um, probably do need a little bit more positive reinforcement. So I guess it depends on the individual, their experience level, and then just kind of their personality and temperament, right? Uh, if I'm working with someone who is just very type A or, or like me, who's just like, I don't, I don't have an emotional you know, bone to pick. I just, I want to know what I'm doing wrong so I can fix it. I am totally cool with, with just being like, no, this sucked. You need to do this and this and this, and you're fucking this up. Like, I like that directness. Um, whereas the next person might not, you know? So, so if I have an athlete who's like that, I will be a little bit more direct. Now, I will also try and make sure that we're framing it in a certain way that's more accurately representative of what's actually happening. So for instance, like if I'm working with a really, really, really high level athlete, like there, you look at their form and it's like 99.999% perfect. But my job is to tweak things even more. So I'm like, no, we need better. We need better. We need better. Um, because you still need constant reinforcement just to keep their technique at that, you know, pristine level. Right. So I have to like go out and find out things where it's like the difference of like a few millimeters is going to make a difference in your position. Right. Um, but I'll still frame it relative to everything else be like, Hey, this looks excellent. I noticed that you're, you looked a little bit unstable at the bottom of your bench press. What I want you to do is I want you to just think about lifting your chest up a little bit higher as you're lowering the bar right now that might, that change might not even really be visible to like most people, but if you're a coach and you've got a really good eye, then you can see those really subtle differences. Um, so I'm critiquing, but I'm also, you know, saying like, Hey, you're looking really good, you know, um, for other people who are like genuinely really sensitive or tend to internalize a lot of these things, uh, like criticism, criticisms or, or critiques or whatever you want to call it. Um, I'll probably do a lot less of that. I'll probably, you know, focus mostly on their wins and keep the criticisms or critiques or whatever you want to call it 
um, more technically driven, you know? So uh, let's say I'm looking at someone's behaviors for the week and I'm like, Hey, you did a fantastic job getting your steps in uh, your sleep looked great. This is definitely a trend improvement over the last couple of weeks. So you've been doing a really great job and week over week, we're seeing a lot of success with that. One thing that I am noticing though, out of all of these things is it looks like you're struggling the most to get all your, you know, protein in. So what I want you to do is this and this and this. So I'll, I'll kind of like disassociate it from them. I won't be like, you're falling below on this because they might internalize that. And then you, you kind of do have to meet people where they're at and then build them up, you know? And then once they get to a certain point that they can be like, oh, you know, eating a chocolate bar doesn't mean I'm a piece of shit. It just means that, you know, I've been struggling and maybe I was stressed out. Like, and I just was like, you know what, this is going to be a functional coping mechanism for me this time, but it's not necessarily going to hurt. Like, you know what I mean? So the, there kind of has to be a bit of balance, but I, I really think it depends on the person. And I also think that like, I think a weight loss goal is fine because contrary to what a lot of people say, like, you know, losing weight will make you more confident in the vast majority of cases. I know people don't like that. They're like, no, you're beautiful. And this and this and that. And it's like, you're full of shit, you know, like, yeah, beauty subjective. But if you look around the world, people do tend to have a certain bias. Now I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong, but that just is reality, mm -hmm. you know? And then beyond that, generally, if there's something that you're struggling with, and let's say that thing happens to be your weight, and then now you start seeing success with it, that's really empowering. Like, I've been fat. I mean, I'm chunky right now, but I've been really fat, though. I've been super shredded. I've been really skinny. I've been really lean and jacked, like kind of been everything in between. And the idea that your body doesn't influence or shouldn't influence how you feel is just nonsense. It shouldn't be the defining factor of how you feel, feel for sure but it does. And so I think wanting to lose 30 pounds is, is perfectly fine. Um, and I think that's a great goal and, and thinking that it's going to make you feel better and more confident, it probably will contribute to that in a positive way. Um, you know, for, for most people, obviously there's exceptions and like eating disorders and things like that. But I think there's also a difference in setting a goal and how you tackle it, I guess. So I tend to be more process oriented versus like, hey, we need to hit, you know, these squat numbers or lose this amount of weight. I'm usually like, hey, we need to hit these things. And if we hit these things, you're going to be as strong as you possibly can come competition. So don't fucking don't worry about like, focusing on that focus on what we can do today. You know, and then with the weight loss, same thing, instead of like delaying gratification until you lose 30 pounds, I usually try and be like, you know, how many wins can we stack up on a daily basis? So if every day you can look at your, you know, your, your adherence and you're like, Hey man, I'm killing this. I'm 90% adherent every week. It kind of like, you don't have to worry about the rest, right? Because you know, you're checking off those little boxes. And so I take more of a process oriented approach. And I think for most people, that's probably going to be pretty effective, but I also don't necessarily think there's anything wrong in just saying like, I, I want to lose 30 pounds because I want to look and feel better, you know? Um, Sorry, I'm kind of rambling again. No, 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 you're perfect. No, but I, <laughs> sort of I thinking I, these things through as I'm saying them, I yeah, guess. Yeah, let, let it let it all come out. But no, I, I agree with you totally where, you know, to, to, to sum all that up a little bit is, you know, you got to adhere or, or adjust everything to the individual in front of you. And if this is you yourself working on your own stuff, like you got to adjust stuff to your own self. There's no one blanket answer for everybody out there, right? And I think on the body image thing, like we are, we, you know, you should love yourself like at every whatever you look like 
love yourself, but you're allowed to also want to change that. And I don't think those yeah. two things have to be separate. If you have 30, 50, 100 pounds to lose, still love yourself, but also want to like get healthier and look better and improve yourself. Otherwise, like what are we what has this come to where we don't want to improve ourselves and we're like belittling the fact that we want to get better? Do you not want to make more money or have a better family life or have a, you know, a better job or a bigger, you know, all these things that we want, like we still want to improve ourselves, And I don't think that that should be, should be separated from wanting to improve our body either. Yeah. I think there's just a lot of stigma and anytime there's a lot of stigma around something, people create bullshit answers that are really easy to refute or sorry, like reasons or rationalizations that are really easy to refute. Because again, exactly like you said, no one would ever go up to someone and be like, Oh, you want to raise what? Like, are you, are you greedy? You yeah. like, you're not satisfied with your life right now. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like what's wrong with making more money and, and being successful in my career? doesn't mean I'm unhappy right now, but why can't I have more if I want more, you yeah. know, like, and, but then when it comes to the body image, it's like, Oh, you want to lose weight? Oh, you must be, what is it? Fat phobic or whatever. It's like, yeah. shut the fuck up. <laughs> You know? as, as if as if being obese is like somehow healthy that's another thing that i can't get over i remember i had a lecture in first year of university and the professor was talking about uh fit at every size and that you can be fat and fit and it's like okay you may you be, definitely be fat and fit yeah you, like, you may be healthy or fat and healthy. players are a great example but yeah it's like you may be healthier than same. someone who's like extremely skinny uh, and doesn't move and eats junk and smokes cigarettes and all that stuff. But that is not like, that's not the bar. That's not who we should be. We don't, don't yeah. want to be healthier than the least healthy person. That's not really, we should strive for a little bit more than that. Yeah. It's a pretty intellectually dishonest comparison. I like, I've seen that a lot as well. And I've heard people talk about the research, Oh, metabolically healthy, obese individuals. And it's like, uh, if you actually read the research on that, like, how are they defining healthy? Like, have you yeah. looked at their metabolic parameters? It's like, that's not very healthy. Yeah. So all the people that I hear talking about that, it's like, can you be healthy at every size? It's like, sure. There might be like one or two unicorns. Like there, there's obviously going to be outliers for sure. But it's like the idea that we're supposed to accept that as a general rule of thumb now is fucking ridiculous. The research doesn't support it. And it's like almost entirely a social like it's not a research-based claim it's it's yeah. like a a political tool or not not political but like um i don't know the word but you know what i mean right it's like there's kind of this agenda and this happens to fit into that so they're trying to use research but they're manipulating the research in yeah. order to kind of like you know stake their claim or whatever there is a word there but i can't i can't think of it either but but i agree with yeah. you. I, I i personally like i would even go so far as to say that that kind of language and rhetoric is dangerous because now it's allowing these people who are unhealthy to think that they are healthy and it's not their fault that they are obese or metabolically unhealthy by any by any means and that there's nothing that they can do about it or nothing that they should do about it and i think and i think on a population level i think that that's that's dangerous yeah i mean anyway anytime you anytime you sort of tell someone that they don't have responsibility in something there's usually some not so nice consequences to that. So if you're like, you know, oh, it's not your fault that you're overweight or whatever, because it's your genetics. It's like, well, probably not your genetics. Like <laughs> you're talking about an extremely, extremely rare cases, you know, or you can't get strong because your genetics, or you can't do this because your genetics, or you're, you're not smart enough. And that's why you can't excel in, in work. And it's like, man, I'm not very smart. <laughs> you know, I'm not a really smart guy. I certainly don't have great genetics for strength and strength. Maybe strength is probably a, a better one, but like 
you know, so I was like, well, if I'm not going to be very strong, how can I like maximize my situation to be as strong as possible? Okay, well, let's put on weight. And it's like, how much weight? Well, I've already put on 110 pounds and I'm planning on putting on another like 50, you know? And so that's a, you know, that, that's quite a bit. That's doing a lot to be yeah. able to, to kind of like make up for, for, you know, subpar genetics for strength. And so there's a lot that can be done. But the moment that you just tell people like, oh, your genetics, this, or like, you know, yeah, you can be healthy to resize and it's not a big deal. And people just give up, you know, they just give up. Yeah. So. I think, I think another aspect of that is the same way you mentioned before that people's behavior kind of makes sense when you look at their past history and, and their past behaviors. I think that our results in the gym or with our health also always make sense. Things don't really happen by accident. If someone lost weight, they may think that they did something, but you know, by uh, physiologically, X happened to make them lose weight or to gain weight or to gain strength. Like the, th the same things happen. So when we look at what we can do, we can drive our results in the direction that we want them to go. We just have to know how to get there and, and how to actually execute on that. Yeah, that's the tricky part, right? Yeah, <laughs> that, that that if if we could just make people do that, then we would have the easiest job in the world. But that's the hardest part. So <laughs> it, it changes. Um, another thing that I wanted to kind of go back to, as you were saying about uh, when you're coaching elite lifters and you know they're 99.9 percent .9 perfect versus a, a generic a general population person who their, their squat will never be that perfect. Um, people getting caught in the weeds of things and and trying to overstep things. So another big thing is supplements. People are rave on the latest supplements. Somehow now creatine I've found is like making the rounds and I don't know how, like it's not new. It's not, I don't know what happened in social media that like creatine is popular right now, but then you've got turkesterone and pre-workouts and all these things. And it's like, well, you haven't even done the, the, like level one yet. We're not, we're not jumping ahead to, to like so many levels above us where we need these supplements. Almost no one general population needs those things, but we become so dependent on this, this false, uh, sense of, I don't know what it is, but some, something that is going to push us past what we can't do ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so, and so what I wanted to get your opinion on was, was just that in, in and of itself is like, what do you think about, about people who turn to these supplements too early and how does that impact them from a behavior and from a training perspective? Um, I mean, I don't generally recommend tons of supplements, but again, it's, it's really context dependent. So for instance, like, um, women in, in my experience really struggle to get sufficient protein intake, right. As athletes. Um, that's just something anecdotal that I've noticed. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of coaches that I've talked to and have kind of said the same thing to, to corroborate that. And so in those instances, like, yeah, a, a whey protein supplement can be excellent. And I mean, sure. They're not getting like their nutrition from, from, you know, whole foods. Well, I mean, whey protein is, is a food, I guess. Uh, but even still, right. Like that's going to have significantly more benefit. And then if that works, that works. And that's great. We don't really need to do anything after that. Or we can use that to kind of bolster their, their, their protein intake while they get more comfortable eating that food, if that's kind of the direction they want to go. Um, 
but I would say that that's kind of a, a limited example like that. That's usually not representative of, of most of the um, drive for supplements, right? Like either pre-workouts or terkestrone or test boosters or fat burners or whatever that, like, I think those are kind of the more popular ones. Um, really, there's probably only like five or six supplements for natural athletes that I would really recommend. Um, I don't like, I coach enhanced athletes, but I don't really know much about enhancements. So I kind of just refer them to someone else for that stuff. But that's why I say for natural is because once you're enhanced, there's a lot of other stuff. Like you do need some liver support. You do need some other stuff, um, like that. So, so I'll kind of like, just like make that distinction. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the drive is just to, to not have to do the work, right? Like people want results and they want them now and they don't really want to do anything for it. And that's sort of the reason, like, I know that like the supplement industry and the fitness industry, like they get a lot of heat for, you know, putting out bullshit content or promoting, you know, bogus supplements and whatever. But this is something I've actually spoken out on before where, you know, if you want something to be true, you're going to fall for it. And so it's just as much the fault of the individual who who's purchasing these things as it is the promoter. Because it's not like all of a sudden these products just appeared. There was a demand that catalyzed the development of these products, even if they are bullshit. And, and that demand is we want results for little to no effort or work. You know, people are willing to spend like so much money on all this nonsense, but they're not willing to spend money on a, on a coach. And a lot of the times it's because you know, like if you got, if you got someone to say like, give me $10,000 and I can snap my fingers and you'll be instantly fit. Everyone would do that. Literally everyone, even people who are broke. They're like, I'm taking it alone. I'm going to do that. But you say, Hey, give me $10,000 and I'm going to coach you for, you know, I don't know, a year or whatever it is. We're going to do this. And eventually you're going to get to your physique. It might take you two years or three years or whatever, but you're going to get there. If you just follow what I say and we take a gradual process, no one's going to do that because there's uncertainty there. There's like work, there's that time difference. Like it's just, it just is too much of an insurmountable goal. And so I think people are always looking for, or often looking for an easy way out. They're looking for a way to bypass the hard work. They're looking for a way to bypass the uncomfortable feelings of, you know, change because ultimately you have to change. Like, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but I've certainly seen like, I've seen marriages end because people have gotten in shape. Like I, I've coached, I'm not going to name anyone, but I coached an individual before and they wanted to lose weight. And as they kind of were going through their transformation process, they just became a whole new person, right? Like they, they felt confident. They felt more empowered. Um, they decided to go back to work, They you know, and like restart up their career. And they ended up leaving their husband because they're like, man, I didn't realize how unhappy I was because of this. So that's a big part of it. It's, it's usually not just, oh, I got in shape. It's usually like, hey, I got in shape, but I also learned how to be disciplined. I learned how to, you know, um, delay gratification. I learned how to make better decisions. I learned how to regulate my, like there's so many other things that are also going on simultaneously. And so I think that that's, um, that's a lot of change and that's a lot for people to deal with, you know? And so there's this very clear and understandable attraction to 
quick fixes or terkesterone or whatever it is, you know? And so I understand it, but at the same time, it's like, I don't know. <laughs> like I, you're I, an adult, you shouldn't be falling for that stuff. Yeah, I get it as well. And, and I think to maybe play the other side of it, one part of it is, listen, if, if the, if the money is not an issue to some person, say you're spending 50 bucks a month on, you know, whatever supplement, if that, if buying that supplement gets you, gets you going, gets you motivated and say, Oh, I'm taking X, Y, Z thing. So now I'm going to like be serious at the gym, be serious on my diet, assuming that whatever you're taking is safe and blah, blah, blah. I think it's okay. I, I wouldn't, I would be careful to associate your success with that supplement, but if it's getting you to do all of the other things, is it having the same intended effect as if you weren't take it, taking it? It's probably pretty close. And I know that that's like a very slippery slope for for people to to for people to get on, but if it's getting you in the right mindset, I think that I think that it can be okay so long as it's not detrimental financially or or health-wise in in, in to, to that individual who's taking it. On the other yeah. side of things that you were mentioning, though, um, I do believe that the gym is a great proxy for everything else that we experience in life. Like you mentioned, it, it is a sad example that, that that the marriage ended, but it sounds like that individual became a better version of themselves, whatever that means for them, where they, they became disciplined, they became driven and went back to work and all these things that you said. So... Now, again, it's a very sad example, but I think that the gym does teach us a lot of things as far as like the the way that I like to equate it is that physical training leads to physical freedom of anything else that we have in our life. And I personally think that the definition of like freedom and health are almost the same in that it allows us to kind of do what we want when we want with who we want type of thing. And I know that that's like a lot of things that I just said there, <laughs> but, um, I, I always believe that the gym is a, is a good, is a good place to learn things that are more applicable outside of the gym. Mm-hmm. Would you, would you say that that's the same for, for a lot of stuff with many clients that you've seen is that the, the bigger transformation is, is more outside of the gym than like the physical things that happen inside the gym. Um, I, again, I guess it depends on what people want to get out of out of lifting, right? Like, um, I mean, this is something that for me was obviously very transformative because now it's my career and, you know, it's what I do. I'm passionate about it. I'm still competing and I love it. And so for me, it had a, a tremendous impact. You know, all my friends basically are, are lifters. Um, but, but for the next person, maybe they're just doing it because they want to stay healthy and they want to you know, be able to play with their kids. Like I, I do have a handful of clients who are just like, they're just dads and they're training and they've gotten a lot stronger, but they're not looking to compete by any stretch. They just want to be healthy. They just want to promote like a healthy, active lifestyle for their kids. They want to be able to keep up with them and have fun and take them on hikes and stuff like that. So I think it really depends on like what you want to get out of it. But ultimately you can get a lot out of basically anything. Like anything can be some, you know, like a, let's say like a meditative experience, you know, um, people will be like, Oh, lifting teaches you discipline and this and this and this and like self care and resiliency and willpower and all this stuff. And it's like, sure. Great. So does meditating. So does yoga. So does riding a bike. So does being a great chef. So does, um, you know, being a, a home builder, like you can take anything and make it something where you truly master that process 
And that process of mastery, I think, can be really transformative, but it really just depends on, you know, if you want to get that out of it or not. Um, but I've certainly seen a lot of people completely change for the better through, you know, their, their physical endeavors. So I definitely know that it has a capacity for that. Um, but yeah, just depends on, I guess, what they want to get out of it. Do you think that these kind of lessons would be learned even if someone is not necessarily looking for it? I think it's inevitable. Really, like I, I certainly didn't go into training being like, you know what, I want to be more confident and I wanted this and I wanted that. I started lifting weights because I hated my body. I started lifting weights because I was bored. Oh, wait, no, no, that's not true. I'm kind of mixing up my timelines, but mm. I started boxing. So, boxing was a precursor. I, I never lifted weights, but I started boxing. So, that would have been like my first introduction to fitness, I guess. I started fighting because I hated my physique. I felt like I was weak, which I was. And I got into a fight one time and I froze and I was so ashamed that I froze. And I was like, that ne I never want to happen. That, that happened again. And I was like, I'm going to become an amazing fighter. And then I'm going to go and beat the fuck out of this guy. <laughs> and like, um, that was my plan. Like I legit, that was my plan. And I, so I went and I started doing it. I became a high level boxer and like, um, and then at that point I just didn't care anymore. Right. But I didn't go in there being like, I want to become a fitness person and da, 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 da. I just went in there wanting to fight. And then the more that I got into it, like, you just kind of have to become sort of like more emotionally mature anyways, you know, like, like for instance, a great example of that is when you're, you know, when you're dieting and you have like maybe a bad weigh in, you know, if you're weighing yourself daily and one day, suddenly you're up like five pounds or some bullshit, you know? And it's like, oh my God, like I need to make these radical changes. And it's like, that's the emotional response a lot of people get. Like even me as a coach, I sometimes will still feel that way, even though I know that that's ridiculous. But knowing something doesn't mean that your emotions are going to follow suit, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's almost like those are two different directors, right? And, um, <clears throat> but eventually you just have to learn to be like, hey, my emotional response doesn't matter. I know this to be true. I know this is normal. I'm just going to continue going on um, as, as planned because the trend is, is heading in a good direction. And that's a certain level of emotional maturity. And it takes time to get there, but that's just something that sort of happens on its own as you get better. And as you get better, your emotional maturity improves, which kind of feeds back into your level of discipline and adherence and all that stuff. So it's kind of this like positive feedback loop. Um, so I think that if you're doing it for a long period of time, it, it is sort of inevitable. Um, yeah. I don't know anyone who's become like a really amazing athlete and hasn't changed his person personally. Yeah. yeah. Or even anyone who's like become fit or healthy and like become just a shittier person. I don't, I don't, I can't think of any examples of, of people that there, there are certainly like plenty of like fit guys who are, who are D bags and like that. And like that definitely exists, but uh, I don't think people uh, get, get worse as people, as a, as a human being through going through a fitness journey, I think it's an overwhelmingly good thing. And I, I tend to be of the belief that because it's very tangible, we can feel it, we can see it. It happens like every day and it kind of, it touches every part of our life, whether we think about it or not. Whereas some other stuff like your career might, might not like people are not going to just notice that you're making more money if you're not buying fancier stuff and they're and they're seeing it right but anyone everyone you meet will be able to see that you know you look healthier you just look better people say that all the time well, it's not necessarily that you look bigger or fitter it's just you look good you look good now you, what are you doing for yourself you look good and and we can't really picture or point out what good looks like but 
we all know when someone like looks like they're taking care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know a couple of people who became pieces of shit after they all right. <laughs> after they got fit, but that had nothing to do with their fitness journey. So I agree with you that like fitness will almost always just be a positive thing, but then if you're a dickhead, it might just kind of amplify <laughs> you being a dickhead because <laughs> yeah, now you have a little bit more of an ego, but you've kind of earned it, if that makes sense. And I don't know. Yeah. If, but, if you've um, earned it, some, some guys are just like, yeah. kind of like back to what we were talking about at the beginning. They're just strong. They were just born strong. And so they get in the gym and they start throwing around big weights and they, and they think that they're strong. But I think that a lot of these people don't really realize what strong is. For example, some guy who weighs that's like 200, 220, 220 pounds. Gets to the gym, squats two, 225, two plates on the bar. Oh, look at me. I'm a big guy. Mm-hmm. That they, they might not even realize that that is not very impressive for someone who is that size and that weight. In fact, if that's your best at that weight, that's incredibly unimpressive <laughs> to, yeah. to an extent. And so you got to kind of go through the ringer to understand, you know, not that it's a competition, but it kind of is where, where you stand on the, on the totem pole of, of being strong. There's, there's strong in your local gym and maybe you're stronger than your friend who's never worked out. And then there's, you know, people who compete and do this for real and, and squat or lift way more and would laugh at whatever you're doing that you think is strong. Yeah. I think for the most part, like people who are pretty serious competitors, um, are all pretty friendly for the most part. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah, you get into like little feuds and infighting and stuff like that, but that's kind of like, that's just humans, you know, but I've never really had that experience where I've gone up to someone who's just incredibly strong and they've been this massively arrogant individual. It's always been the case that like someone helped them and now they want to help you and they want more people to be strong because the stronger they, you are, that'll help them get stronger and that'll help them get better. And it's like, you just kind of, it's, it's very much like a, a community, which is, which is pretty awesome. But yeah, that's definitely something that you get a little bit more in like private clubs. So like I trained at a private club, um, versus like a commercial gym where it is very like clicky. It's almost like mean girls, you know, like you, you go in and you can see like, oh, these are all the Instagram physique athletes. These are like the one crew of like, you know, gym bros that always train together and they kind of look the same for like five years, but they're always trying to max out. <laughs> then over here, you get like a couple of randoms who were just doing their thing, like functional training on BOSU balls and stuff like that. Then over there, you've got like your cardio people and like, yeah. So I guess it depends on where you're training, but I don't know. It's always been like pretty welcoming and the, the better people are usually like, yeah, I've just, I've just never really had a bad experience with, with people, I guess. Yeah, I I think I I agree with that a lot. It's like the guys that you see that are doing impressive things in the gym are not the guys who leave their weights out, don't wipe up their equipment, generally make a mess, are loud and screaming and yelling and just being obnoxious in the gym. But it's the guys who are a little who think they're way stronger than they are, who are the the problem people in the gym that scare off newcomers and and that type of that type of guy. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I I'd say that's probably more common than not. Um, yeah, definitely making a lot of generalizations, yeah. but no, but, no, no, you know, no, no. So I, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing. I'm literally just kind of trying to think things through for, for myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, one thing that I did have a, a couple questions or, or one question from, uh, from someone on Instagram was they wanted you to, or they wanted to ask you about the differences. This is just totally switching gears. This is a horrible transition, yep. but, <laughs> <laughs> but asking about the differences between, uh, sumo and conventional deadlifting 
Mm-hmm. And this is also someone who is not competing as a power lifter. Just broadly speaking? The just broadly speaking, yeah. So well, the difference is uh, we can just define it and then like why would you use either of them? Uh, well, again, it de- like it, it depends. Like are you just trying to get a big deadlift or are you trying to build up a certain body part or all that stuff? So I guess I'll... I won't necessarily go into like, you should be doing A, B, or C. I'll just kind of like talk about it and they can fill in the gaps for themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So the biggest difference is going to be your stance, obviously, right? So with a conventional stance, your hands are going to be outside of your feet. Your feet are generally going to be about between shoulder width and hip width apart is usually what you see. Whereas with sumo, your feet are generally going to be wider than your shoulders and your hands are going to be on the inside and between your legs. A conventional deadlift is going to be much, much more leaned forward. So you've got a much, um, your torso angle is going to be much more parallel to the floor than it is like on a sumo deadlift, right? Not to say that your back will be parallel, but um, you're going to have much more of a forward lean and the bar is going to be probably further away from your hips on a conventional so it's going to be primarily your posterior chain. Yes, you're using your quads in the initial drive phase, but it's primarily a back, hamstring, and hip activity, right? Whereas in the sumo deadlift, the sumo deadlift, you need to have extremely flexible and strong adductors uh, or hip, mobile hips in general are, are a huge bonus. Um, and having strong adductors and, and hips for stability is really important. And then very, very strong quads because that's going to be the primary mover of the, uh, of the lift. And you want to basically get as vertical as you can with your knees open, uh, keeping center mass over the bar and a nice midfoot pressure. And then basically you're just like, and this is really like a cueing thing. You kind of want to like squat the weight up more. I know some people don't like saying that and they're like, no, no, no it's not like this. It's like this, but it's, it's a cue. It, you know, so <laughs> it is what it is. Um, but uh, yeah, th- those are, kind of the big differences in terms of like EMG readings, there, there are differences. So um, your, your lats, your rectors and your hips are going to be substantially more trained in a conventional deadlift. Now I know that I've seen EMG readings say that you either have similar glute recruitment or or, yeah, glute recruitment in the conventional and the sumo. Um, and then sometimes I've seen it showing that you have more hip recruitment in the sumo because you're externally rotated, but anytime you're externally rotated, you're going to be more contracted, if that makes sense. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that in that EMG reading means that we're getting more load on the hips, if that makes sense. Yep. So if you want to get your glutes stronger, I know a lot of people talk about like sumo because your hips are, you know, I actually disagree with that. Um, you will probably get much, much better hip training if you're doing conventional or an RDL or something like that, than you will doing a sumo pull. Um, because again, the, the moment arm is just longer, the, the distance between like the line of force and the, and the bar and, and your hips. Um, and so it's going to prioritize leverage on the hips versus, uh, anything else. Um, 
Yeah, I guess those are some of the main differences. Uh, I actually wrote an article about this, which <laughs> might be might do a little bit of a better job of, of kind of like talking about the differences. I guess I'm, it's kind of a big open ended question, so I'm not exactly sure what else you, they would want me to uh, to talk about. Yeah, I'm. I don't have any more context than what I gave you. So, sure. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so, so, so I don't. I don't know how to help you, but I think you did a pretty good job okay. breaking it down. And and just to just to sort of translate that EMG and the external rotation things that Daniel was just mentioning. Think about when you're doing a conventional deadlift, you have to bend down more, so your hips are more. Uh, you're getting into more hip flexion, hip extension. So that's where your glutes will be used more. When you're in the sumo, because your leg is externally rotated, the muscle is going to be a little bit shorter, and so it's going to kind of feel like you're using it more but whether that's true or not kind of up for uh, up for debate I, I think um but i think for most people like if you're not competing and your goal is not to simply pull the the most amount of weight that you can then do whichever one is comfortable for you and probably do both of them just to train both things because it doesn't really matter now if you're competing Pick the one that you can lift the most with and do that one because that's that's the point of, of competing. Not 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 about being comfortable, it's about getting the heaviest amount of weight off the ground. Does that does that make sense? Is that accurate to say? Yeah, I mean, generally you're gonna be most comfortable in, in the in the position that you're strongest in. Um, but right. no, I totally get what you mean. And yeah, like I'd agree if if even if you are a competitive lifter, you should probably still experiment because a lot of the times people will just adopt one and they won't really try the other ones. So unless you're like like I've got a guy who pulls like 750 and he does it conventional. He's very explosive. You look at the way he's built. He's never tried sumo, but I'm not putting him in sumo. I, he he's built for conventional deadlifts. There's not really a big point in experimenting with him that much. Um, but I mean, yeah, if, if you don't know and you're kind of struggling with one lift versus the other, then yeah, go ahead experiment. Yeah. I think this, you know, tying things back in it, it goes back to training athletes versus general population. Athletes, you got to be way more specific because the goal is very different. Again, goal is lift the most amount of weight off the floor. General population is feel good, be kind of strong, and and you know have fun. <laughs> that's 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 really yeah. the goals. And so those are two very different things. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. And I and I will link to uh, your article. I'll put it in the show notes. I'll I'll, I'll grab the link for, or I'll just find the link and uh, put in the show notes, but, um, what else do you have coming up and, and where can people kind of find you to, to learn more about more things? Um, man, well, right now I'm working on a certification course that we're going to be launching, um, for powerlifting. So that's, that's going to be a really, really deep, 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 uh, certification program. So that's pretty cool. That's really exciting. Not exactly sure when that's going to be released. We're still in the developmental stages. Um, and that, sorry to interrupt, but that'll be th through Kabuki? Through Kabuki, yeah. And we're teaming up with, oh, I'm so bad because I don't know the U.S. Um, powerlifting federations very well. It's either we're teaming up with the USPA or USAPL. Don't remember which one. Okay. But, um, so, so you know, look, look to, for that because that one's going to be like super, super, super in-depth. Really, really good content is going to be in there. Um, I'm going to be releasing an article hopefully next month um, on dieting uh, and eating behavior. So it's actually going to go into like incredible depth on all this stuff. I'm not done yet. It's already like 14,000 words. So it's, it's really, really in depth. Um, you can just kind of pick a section and, and read through it, but uh, that'll be kind of cool once it's done. Um, 
where you can find me is on Instagram, uh, just Daniel underscore DeBrock, D-E-B-R-O-C-K-E. I have a YouTube channel, uh, which I believe is Stacked Strength. I should know that right off the top of my head, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't. And then I have the Stacked Strength podcast. Um, that's basically where you can find me. I do have a Facebook, but the only reason why I really have social media is just because I have a business. If I didn't have a business, I'd honestly wouldn't have social. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I'm with you. And and but, I can definitely uh, attest that your, your articles are long, but they are super in depth. So if, if it is, if there's an article on Daniel's site that you're looking at and like dig into it and, and if, you know, read the parts that are relevant to you and read all of it, if you want to learn more, but he does spend a lot of time. And that's why you just mentioned the, the articles coming out next month or so, not tomorrow. You're just going to whip it up randomly this afternoon. So I do appreciate the the level of detail that you put into all of the content and ed- educational material that you put out. And I'm sure that that will continue to to progress and be even more through through kabuki with enhanced resources and, and reach through them awesome thanks man yeah, and are you that. are you competing anytime soon i know that you're kind of coming back from an injury but what's what's that uh, timeline look yeah like for you? i'm competing in april uh april 24th um i don't know where though somewhere in alberta i gotta figure it out i usually <laughs> don't even pay attention to all the details until like kind of the day before yeah so so we'll see um yeah, so I'm competing for that. Um, feeling pretty good. Still a little hesitant. Like my last squat session, I think you saw, was my first squat session a bit. It's a little hesitant, a little apprehensive, just because you know I tore my adductor, and so I didn't want it to snap off. But yeah. uh, it, just to interrupt you there, Daniel saying that he was like a little hesitant getting back in and, and first squat session back, and talking about people who are really strong. He's saying that he's hesitant, but he had 500 plus pounds on his back. So continue. <laughs> yeah so i was was a little hesitant on those um just working up to my top set or whatever but it felt pretty like didn't feel very good actually because i hadn't squatted in a bit but uh you know it's it's definitely coming back i'm feeling like mostly now it's just mental but that was a Mm. big barrier to overcome which was nice so yeah prep's going pretty well can't really complain gonna be competing with a ton of my friends out there so it's gonna be pretty awesome Awesome, man. Yeah, that's exciting for sure. It's always the hard part about coming back from injuries is just that mental battle of like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. It's not It's yeah. not going to happen again going through the same motion. So that's yeah, awesome. But sure. that's that's super exciting. Is there anything else that you want to leave the people with here in closing? Um, not really. I, I guess just like, you know, training, diet, all that stuff is just a process, you know, like it's a lot of people try and bite off more than they can chew or they want to rush things. But the right way will always be the fastest way, you know, shortcuts are never end up being shortcuts. So just take it one step at a time. It can be overwhelming if you go for too much. So just literally one step. If that one step is too big, cut it down even further. If that's still too big, cut it down even further and do it until it's something you can actually do. And then once you're consistent with that, just say, okay, what's the next little step that I can take. And then just kind of go that way. And if you do that, I mean, sure, you might not be progressing at the exact rate that you want, but like, I'm not going to be a millionaire by next week. And that's not the exact rate that I want. But eventually, if I just keep building my business and keep doing stuff, I'll get there. And if you keep training and, you know, doing your diet and whatever it is that you're working towards, and eventually you will get there. So I think that's probably one of the most underlooked um, aspects of, of training and diet and stuff like that. It's just really, really small steps over time. Very much agree and very well said. Thank you very much for your time, Daniel. Uh, To anyone listening, 
follow at Daniel DeBrock on Instagram, Stack Strength, more or less everywhere else. The podcast, the articles, I'll link to it all in the in the show notes as well. I appreciate you all for listening and appreciate your time. Give me a follow on Instagram as well at Daniel Yoris. Share the podcast with a friend who needs to hear it. Wish Daniel good luck in his upcoming strength meet and with everything else going on and rating a review on iTunes, Spotify, all that good stuff. And that's it. Take care. See you later.